You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBGive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I am Art Taylor. You know, this is the start of the third year of the Heart of Giving podcast. Time has really flown by. We started this right at the, I guess, heading deeply into the pandemic because we wanted to begin to inspire people to continue to give and serve and highlight the stories of people who are doing amazing things. I really believe that we're accomplishing that objective. If you listen to our episodes, you'll notice that we have some pretty amazing people who have lived and are living incredible lives, fulfilling missions, helping people, helping institutions, helping causes. And if you have any sense of giving back in your heart, you will be moved by these folk. And I know most Americans do. Most Americans want to find a way to contribute to their communities and to contribute to their society. So I wanted to just stop for a minute and just acknowledge that it's been two years. We're starting our third year today. And I have for you a little bit of a story that I want to talk about because it has to do with community our show today is really going to be about people digging into community. We're, we're not talking about massive organizations today. We're not talking about giving away billions and billions of dollars. All that's really good and important. We're just talking about everyday folk who have something that they want to contribute back to society and back to their communities They were moved to do it, and they're taking steps. And the weekend that I've had really features that. It really highlights that. This weekend, I had the chance to attend two events. One was called The Blueprint. It was the sixth annual Diversity in Medicine Conference. It was hosted and put together by my mentee, Dr. Sharice Hamblin, who is an OBGYN. And Sharice has put together an amazing event in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She literally took over the first floor of this massive 
institution, the Pennsylvania College of Health and Sciences in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to host this sixth annual Diversity in Medicine Conference. Now, what's so amazing about this is that Sharice came to me about six or seven years ago and said she wanted to do something to change the way young people are introduced to careers in medicine. She wanted to increase the pipeline of young people, particularly people of color, so that more of them would be introduced to careers in medicine and careers in serving people who need medical assistance. And she came to me thinking about what she could do we had some conversations about that. And here it is now, six years later, and she has put together the sixth annual conference, sixth annual conference, Diversity in Medicine. And it was an amazing event. I got to drive up there, me and my father-in-law, my road dog, Abner Gibson, got in a car from DC early on Saturday morning and we drove up there just to pop in, just to take a look at what Sharice was doing, Dr. Hamlin was doing, and it was quite an event. She had, on Friday, before we got there, a session called Navigating Pre-Med Journey, Your Roadmap to Success. Another conversation was about the doctor and pre-med advisors and how to deal with that when you're in college. Another event was on what residents and students want to know about navigating student loans. She talked about on Saturday, the allied health professions. Not everybody wants to be a doctor. Some people have to assist in other ways. How do you get there? There were there was a session called Black Men in White Coats. How about that? Black Men in White Coats. Careers in Nursing. Summer, summer, summertime. Making the most of your undergraduate summer. So she was doing so much to lay a way, lay a pathway for young people who may never have been thinking about medicine to get connected with it and to get into that profession. She also had some sessions on public health. Here's some of the nuances and details of applying for master's degrees in public health. And there was also an important session on reclaiming black birth, because as we know, uh, black women are having disproportionate problems having babies. They're not getting the same health treatment as the majority women in this country. And they wanted to dig into that and find out why and begin to discuss it. I'm so proud of Sharice. I can't tell you how proud I am of this woman who has a family. She has children. She has a busy career. And she's doing all of this in her spare time. She's doing this in her spare time making sure that young people have a pathway to a career in medicine. So that was my first stop. That was my first stop.
talk about inspiration. So then in Lancaster, my brother lives in Lancaster. And by the way, I went to college in Lancaster. So I have a home there. My brother stayed there and I pick him up and we drive into Philly. And I'm going to tell you about that trip to Philly. The trip to Philly was to attend an event where I was to be the master of ceremonies for the Philadelphia Black Basketball Hall of Fame. Philadelphia Black Basketball Hall of Fame. And they were going to be inducting a major class into that Hall of Fame, including people like Kobe Bryant posthumously. And I was to be the MC. I can't tell you how honored, first of all, I was to go back to my hometown and participate in this event. I would have just been happy to be in a crowd, honestly. But the organizer of this event, who's here with me today, wanted me to be the MC. And I have to tell you, man, it was it was quite an event. It was quite an event. And so I thought I would let you all know about this this man, this spirit, this great human being who organized this event and let you hear from him why it was so significant that we did this, that he did it, that he put this event on, what it means to people in Philadelphia, because most people who aren't from Philadelphia won't realize the importance of basketball in our culture in Philadelphia. Basketball has meant a lot to a lot of people coming up in Philadelphia. And it was fitting to have a Hall of Fame to acknowledge the people who laid the foundation so that basketball could be an essential element of our culture in Philadelphia. So I have with me today Maurice Howard. We call him Mo. Mo Howard. Now, I want to tell you just a little bit about Mo before I let him talk. Mo Howard, for those of you who follow basketball, particularly college basketball in the 70s, Mo Howard was a member of the University of Maryland's Turpins basketball team under Coach Lefty Drizel in the 1970s, mid to late 1970s. And Mo played on perhaps one of the greatest college basketball teams ever assembled and played in what some people regard as one of the greatest basketball games ever played between the University of Maryland and North Carolina State. Maurice's team had five All-Americans and five of them turned out to be, including Maurice, turned out to be NBA players. And, you know, when you when you have an experience like that, when you go from high school like Maurice did, where you were a star and everyone just held you up in high regard and acclaim, and then you go on to have a great college career, and then you go on to have a great professional career. Some people will just 
sit on that all their lives. And that'll be the greatest thing that they ever do. They'll just stop there. But Maurice went on to have a career in education after he played in the NBA, after his basketball days were over. But he continued to to take advantage of his basketball roots in different ways, coaching teams, supporting athletes in different ways, and staying connected to those who needed his assistance and wisdom. And in time has become sort of the dean, in my opinion, of Philadelphia basketball. The dean of Philadelphia, certainly in the black community in Philadelphia. And so when it became time to organize the Philadelphia Black Basketball Hall of Fame and to take it really to the next level of what it could be, Maurice was the natural person to take this on. Now, I have to tell you, with all of the ability and talent that Maurice had, he was very reluctant to do this. He didn't want the attention shined on him. He didn't want people looking at him. And he knew how hard this would be because, frankly, you know, sometimes when you try to help people, it's not always a bed of roses. You don't always get the thanks that you get that you should get. Sometimes you get more pain from trying to help people than you get uh, rewards from it. But Maurice, while he was concerned about that, persevered anyway. And I have to tell you what happened on Saturday night was pure magic. It was pure magic. There were hundreds of people assembled in that event who many of us hadn't seen for years. They came back to be a part of this event and it was just warm and beautiful, uplifting, and it was more importantly, preserving this rich culture. So let me just stop talking. <laughs> let me just stop talking and welcome Maurice Howard, Mo Howard to the show. Mo, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thanks, Art, man. You know I'm a waterhead. <laughs> I'm sit, sitting back here all misty-eyed with all the things that you said because you're true. You're telling the truth. Let me go back to the genesis of the, the Black Basketball Hall of Fame. You know, as we were sitting around, Jeff Arnold, Del Greco, Wilson, and myself, we were sitting around talking about the old timers, right? And Jeff and Dell would visit Coach Claude Gross, our mutual youth coach, Claude Gross. And they would have conversations with Claude Gross, and Dell decided to videotape them. And so it, it entered into our thinking that, you know, there is no repository of archived conversation with these men. And we all looked up to these men as young kids, right? These were the guys that I had a dad that lived in my house every day, but they were like my dad too, right? We believed in them. Uh, we trusted them to lead us in the right direction. 
So in any event, we just came up with with an idea to say, like, let's see if we how many of these people we can we can recognize, even even in in death, that we could recognize and, and create this this Hall of Fame, this Black Basketball Hall of Fame. Initially, it was to tell the stories about all the men who never got the chance that I did for whatever the reasons may be. In the early 50s, there was still uh, a lot of segregation, even in the North, and there were quotas. So we had men that you know, were part of our everyday lives. They acted as coaches and mentors in our everyday lives, but we were too young to know what their story was. And so after learning about the stories of uh, Mr. T. Parham and Coach John Chaney, who ultimately became a Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, I was intrigued as to how many other men that there were in our city who had to forge the same path. So our first, our first class was ridiculous, right? Some of the names, Will Chamberlain, um, Alonzo Lewis, Zach Clayton, who was a, no, a well-known boxing referee, Tarzan Cooper. We had, must have inducted maybe 18 or 19 men. We had our very first banquet, and, you know, it was just the guys, right? You know, the guys who would show up for any kind of conversation like that, you know? So... right. We're in the room, and and actually, Del Greco was to act as the MC, and Coach Gross took the microphone, and he just commandeered the entire banquet. And we had so much fun because he was quite a character, as you know. I know. He was quite a character. There's only one of him. Uh, consequently, he would die a few weeks later after that event. So it took on a it took on a new meaning for me. It took on a new meaning for me. And as I began to visualize and dream about what it could be, you know, we went through two more banquets. The inductees became, you know, more prominent. We reached back. We tried to mix the the elders, try to bring the elders and those men who were great players who played professionally who never got any recognition, not, not just from the teams that they're played on, but for all the basketball aficionados in our town. So we bought them forth as well. And then COVID came, right? COVID came and we kind of got like what I call a COVID blessing, right? There was a small change in how we were organized. You know, initially we were a kind of basketball nominating kind of organization and we, we'd meet a couple times a year and we talk about who we wanted to nominate and then we have the basket the banquet and then we would just meet again next time well in the COVID I thought it would be a great opportunity to create what we had we called like a a wellness call right we check on each other Every week, we'd have a big Zoom call, and everybody would be on. And then we started talking about Black Basketball Hall of Fame business. We said, well, heck, if we're going to meet all the time, we may as well start talking about some business. 
because we were we were beginning to take on a different a different look, right? Uh, we we had some women to the organization, and they were very helpful, and because they saw a lot of stuff that we didn't see. As a result, um, we started out with an idea to sell some T-shirts, you know, Black Basketball Hall of Fame T-shirts and hoodies and face masks and. You know, we made like about over a little over $20,000 hawking T-shirts and hoodies, which was beyond my comprehension because I am not a salesperson. But everything just, it just took off. It just took off. And so we have a little, little money. And then we started thinking about how many people we knew that were great basketball players in our town who may have been going through some hard times. And so we came up with an idea to gift them. Wasn't a lot of money, but maybe just enough money to keep their lights on or maybe buy some groceries or keep their cell phone working. You know, we just thought about all the players in our town who weren't doing well. So we, we were able to do that. We were able to do that. As this is going on, the demand for these T-shirts and, this, and these hoodies is like going berserk. Art knows. I would tell Art all the time how much I hated being a T-shirt hawker. <laughs> but, you know, we continued to make money and we thought of some other things to do. And uh, one of the things that we thought we would do is create a scholarship in the name of the imitable Claw Gross and T-Shields. We call it the Shields, the Shields Grow Scholarship. And uh, what we did with it was we actually started out giving it to two students. And then we got a really substantial gift of $5,000, which is really substantial to us. And we were able to do more scholarships. We went from doing the first two. We haven't given them away this year, but last year we gave away 12. Now, again, these are not, you know, they don't cover books, tuition, and none of that stuff. They cover all the incidentals that kids need before they go off to school, right? The toothpaste, the hair grease, whatever, all the little incidentals. We were able to cover that for them as well. So we're, we're sliding out of the COVID now and the lockdown. And, you know, we had planned on having a, a banquet, but city ordinances forbid venues that had catered meals from serving more than 25 people at a time. And then in a couple of weeks, they went to 50. And a couple of weeks after that, it went to 75. And a couple of weeks after that, it went to 100. Well, I knew, I knew that the lineup that we had for that banquet would have superseded 100 people. So we kind of fell back and did some other stuff. We we rectified our Philly New York rivalry, the Philadelphia New York bas- summer basketball games. It was the longest standing uh intercity basketball summer competition in the country, starting in nineteen sixty four. And we kind of bought that back with my good friend and associate Gary Tank Barnes from New York. And so, you know, there was a lot of interest. And in the meantime, you know, we were able to put together a presentation that we presented to young people. It was called How to Get Home Safe. Three of our members, 
Aaron Stewart and uh, Warren Harding, who are law enforcement officers, in addition to another member, Alan Taylor, who's an attorney, they put together this great presentation that we will present to kids that will tell them what to do if they were approached by the police, but also told them what not to do. So, you know, we got a little, we got a little traction out of that as well. But let's, let's get, skip forward to, to the banquet, right? Wait, so, before you get to the banquet, <laughs> before we get to the banquet, I want to help people understand what basketball means when it has meant to black people in Philadelphia. What, what, why was basketball such an important activity, such an important sport, such an important recreational tool uh, in Philadelphia? So based on what I've been, been taught and learned from talking to the elders, black basketball is predominated by black basketball players, right? But some time ago, that was not the case. It seemed to me like generationally, it was always those ethnicities that were on the bottom rung in America, right? There were the Irish and there were the Jewish and then and then it was our turn, okay? These opportunities to, to be great at, at the game of basketball produced great, great relationships between, um, you know, our white counterparts who had a lot of, they, they knew a lot more than we did about the matriculation from high school to college and being able to choose the type of uh, college you wanted to go to. Because if you were good enough, and I say in the 50s, if you were good enough, you were not going to be recruited by a predominantly white institution. That's why, just like in football, we had a lot of our great players from the early the 50s throughout the early 60s were products of HBCUs. So the linchpin for all of black basketball for the matriculation of black athletes into major predominant white institutions was the Glory Road game. And some of you will remember that game where the Texas El Paso team played the University of Kentucky for the national championship. The significance of that game was you had the perennial national champion, the University of Kentucky, coached by Adolph Rupp, which was all white, versus the Coach Haskins team of all black players as they played for this national championship. So when Texas El Paso beat Kentucky for the national championship, really good black basketball players started to make their way to major institutions, major predominantly white institutions in the South. Okay, so I want to step backwards a little bit to talk about the men who didn't get the chance. Okay, those were our pioneers, Art. Those were our pioneers. And as a young as a young guy, I watched these guys. I watched what they did because if I hadn't watched them, I would not have known how to do it myself. I believe that watching those men, and there were many of us who watched those men, 
prepared us for what we were going to encounter. They taught us how to handle ourselves socially. They taught us how to be gentlemen with class and play the game and respect the game, respect the game. So it was very significant, like black basketball, particularly in Philadelphia, was very significant throughout the 60s and the 70s because... Well, I'll tell you, everybody I knew, including me, of course, were playing basketball. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't go to a schoolyard <laughs> at any time of day or night where there wasn't somebody on a basketball court. I mean, it was just what we did. You know, I spent more time on a basketball court than anywhere else. <laughs> we, but we all played baseball to start out, right? Yeah. I know. I played baseball. I played baseball. Yeah, I played baseball. I played baseball, Love right? Baseball. Yes. And we played baseball in the schoolyard. And our schoolyard that I grew up near, we didn't have a basketball court. So we played, you know, we played baseball. And then they put a basketball court in the playground. And everybody stopped playing baseball. Everybody stopped playing baseball. Now, you know, we we didn't know it then, but, you know, the gloves cost a lot of money and the, the bats cost a lot of money. So now we got a basketball, we have a basketball court all we needed ten guys in a basketball, so everybody played. And the significance of that for me is, the guys I grew up with in that playground, they were all pretty good players. They were all pretty good players. It just, you know, it just came down to who had the loudest voice. Who were you listening to? Who were you listening to? Where were they taking you? What were they showing you? Fortunately for me, I had a dad who realized that he didn't know everything, but he was smart enough to know to put me in front of people who could answer questions that he couldn't. For me, that was my major benefit, having a guy, you know, that I was around every day. He was running things for sure. <laughs> I'll tell you, man, I have to tell you everybody this story. I didn't know you, Mo. I didn't know Maurice Howard until about, I don't know, seven years ago was really the first time I actually met him. I saw him play basketball when we were growing up. Never knew him because we were separated enough by age that we weren't in the same circles. But I got to know him when I would go to my basketball game, high school basketball games, at summer league games. Maurice's father, Eddie Howard, would always be at these games, even though Maurice was God knows where. He was playing big time at the University of Maryland. But Eddie Howard continued to come to these games where all of these players from Philadelphia would show up. And he would talk about his son. He would be there talking about Mo. So I got to know Maurice Howard long before I met him. <laughs> long before I met him, I saw him, but I never spoke to him, but I knew him through his father. I got to know you. And the important thing that I mentioned this at the banquet the other night, the important thing about Eddie Howard showing up is that for those of us who did not have a father at home, he gave us an indication, a clue about what it was to raise children. And I said to myself, after knowing that 
Eddie never missed a game that Maurice played. I said that if I ever have children, I want to try to position myself so that if they play sports, I can be there for them. I can be there to see them play and support them in a way that they need to be supported. And I'll tell you, Mo, my daughter played softball at the University of Virginia. She had a great career there. She played in 237 games. And I attended 200 of them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get them all. I got 200 out of 237. Uh, and my son played a year at the University of Maryland as a baseball player. And every time he played, I was there. So I learned that. I got that from Eddie Howard. And I also will say this. Not every parent has the luxury of being able to see their kids play. My mother never got to see me play. Maybe once when I was a senior. She never got to see me play. But I always knew that she was enabling me to play because of her hard work and putting food on the table and putting a roof over our head. You know, we came from what people might consider to be underserved community where there was high degrees of poverty, high degree of social malady. The effects of racism and so forth were present in our communities. And so we didn't have the luxury of having parents in all cases attend our games. And so I said, I want to try to position myself in my life. And if God will give me the grace to have that luxury. And, you know, you have to make certain sacrifices to be able to do that, which I was more than happy to make. Because what I experienced during that time was was priceless, you know, was priceless. You can't replace it. So anyway, I had to tell that story because your father was one of the men who kind of pointed us in the direction of what it would be like to raise a child because we didn't have that. And I know that your father has had the effect on you of sharing with you how it is and what, what it means to give back to community yeah. because you didn't have to do this thing with the black basketball hall of fame. Yeah. You didn't have to do that. Yeah. Your life is just fine. Just like it is. Yeah. Yeah. No need for you to get involved in, <laughs> but you did it. Why did you do it? I, Why did you do it? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> um, Cause nobody, I mean, you getting some thanks now for the banquet. But when you were working to pull it off, there wasn't a whole lot of people thanking you. I know that. Yeah, you right about that. My phone has been busy today. But, you know, I just think that our narrative as far as uh, basketball in Philadelphia, it needs to be preserved, right? It needs to be, it needs to be a part of the basketball community, right? Our basketball community has multiple ethnic constituents, okay? But the black part of it is the part that I think is holds the most fruit simply because of the, the journey that we had to take to be where we are today. You are so right, Art, man. There have been times, and you know, I, I lean on you when I need to lean on somebody the most. 
and you've always given me something to, to take away. This sometimes is a very thankless thing, but I do believe that it's worthy to be, to be held in high regard, uh, to share with our youth, to let them know that, you know, you just didn't start doing this. There are a long line of men and women who, who, who've done this. So to make ourselves available for young people to tell this story, to tell it the way that it really is, as opposed to having somebody else tell the story the way they think it should sound. So that everybody will know, we have a category that's called the Friends of the Hall of Fame, right? And all of the friends in the Hall of Fame are white people, okay? Which is huge for us because they don't differentiate when they have their Hall of Fame or their city um, sports Hall of Fame. They don't differentiate. But for us, it's it's real, okay? The men who are, because we, we right now we just have men, the men who are inducted into our Hall of Fame as friends of the Hall of Fame have, I say, they held the door open just long enough for some of us to get through, okay? They didn't have to hold it open, but they did. And when they held it open, we saw a side of, of basketball that we'd never seen before. So this past weekend, we inducted two, two like renowned high school coaches and Coach Speedy Morris, who may one day be inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, and Joe and Joe Goldenberg from our, our West Philadelphia High School. Like, I don't know if you noticed how Coach Goldenberg was surrounded by his former players, all of yeah. which who happened to be black. They love this mm-hmm. man. They revere this man, you know, and so do I because he put so many young kids on the right path to success. And if that's what we had to use to get there, so be it. There were guys sitting at his table that are Ivy League graduates, man, doing big things in life. And then, then there's Coach Speedy Morris. You know, who had, who has had the luxury of not only being a high school coach, but he was a, high, a college coach, and he coached college men and women. So at his table, you saw Mike Bantam, who was not only an NBA player, but also an Olympian. You saw Lionel Simmons, who actually is the, the third or fourth all-time leading scorer in NCAA basketball history. And you saw and from South. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, and that was cute too. But in any event, <laughs> and then you had uh Linda Hester, you know, who played for Speedy Morris and was a, a an inductee on Saturday. So just the co- whole connection, man, right? We couldn't do this without them, and they couldn't won all the damn games without us. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mo, basketball saved us. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of us wouldn't have made it. I'm not talking about made it into a successful career or anything like that. Yes, it helped with that, too. But a lot of us wouldn't have made it through life had it not been for basketball. And it's really hard to help people appreciate that. 
Because when you're a young kid and you have essentially nothing to look forward to, it's rough. But basketball, basketball games, getting ready for a basketball game, improving your skills as a basketball player, being there every day, working at it, gave us something to shoot for. You know, and I, people, people want to claim, and I get it, that sports can be a distraction from what's really important in life, and it can be. But honestly, a lot of people I know, and, and maybe me too, wouldn't have had an aspiration to go to college or even to finish high school had it not been for someone saying to them, if you want to play, you better go to school. Yes. And we even see today that kids who play sports actually do better than kids who don't. So basketball saved some of us, man. You know, and I just don't think people quite get it. They see, well, what's a basketball? It's a basketball. People throwing a basketball around. It saved us because it gave us something to shoot for, something to something to center our lives around. And so when I think about the Black Basketball Hall of Fame, I think of the people, of course. But for me, it's a reminder of the institution of the game itself that may have saved us. That's why when I talk about it being pivotal at the intersection of black people and black culture, that's what I'm talking about. It saved us. It gave us something that very few other activities, maybe music for some people, yeah, yeah. gave us. Yeah. Well, I'm going to just make it real simple for you, okay? And you've already touched on some of it, our situation socially and financially, um, the places we lived, where we went to school. I just, while I loved growing up where I did in North Philly, I don't want to live there forever, you know? And, and this, wasn't, this was my opportunity to move. This was my opportunity to make a different, just to live in a different neighborhood. You know, just to live in a different environment. You know, I go all over the city. I go everywhere. And I, I got a very, very good story for you. Maybe once a month, I would pack the kids in the car and I would drive through the old neighborhood. I would just drive down Susquehanna and I'd make the right turn on to Gratz because we lived between, we lived on Gratz Street between Susquehanna and Dolphin. And finally, one day, the youngest one, he says, Dad, why do you always drive us down here? And I said to them, because if Dad doesn't, if Dad does not keep doing what he's doing, this is where you're going to live. <laughs> and they were like, well, don't stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> don't stop doing what you're doing. And I thought, I mean. You know, and that's not to say there aren't good people. No, not too, at all. Just, you know, not at all. You know, and the other part and the other part of that is, you know, in the neighborhood where I grew up, there were a lot of good basketball guys. You know what I'm saying? There was a lot of good basketball guys 
who didn't follow the good orderly direction, right? They didn't. They they were just just out there like a rudderless rudderless boat. Many of them are still there. I I could drive through the neighborhood and see many of those same guys still there. So you know, it's a difference. It's a difference in the mentorship. It's a difference in you know visually what you see the kinds of conversations that you're having with people, like you said, you know, you know, play ball. Like my dad, my dad was not an athlete. I think in all, in all the years, I think I seen my dad shoot a basketball one time, one time. I bet he missed. He missed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he did say, he did say to me all the time, he'd say, well, if you're going to play, you, you, you got to be the best at it. If you're going to play, you got to be the best at it. I remember I played in a game against my former high school coach because after my junior year, my high school coach left and he went to another school that played in our league, and I scored 33 points in the game. I scored 33 points in the game, and we lost by three. And you know, the only time my father ever, ever, ever said anything to me about basketball, he said, you threw the game. (laughs) You threw the game. It's the only time he ever said anything to me about how I played. So in his mind, if you're going to do this, just be really good at it. And that was my focus. And not only that, my mom and dad, they migrated here from Georgia, Florida. And, you know, they really didn't have anything. My dad was a truck driver. My mom worked in a clothing factory, man. And when they started seeing my name in the newspaper and subsequently on television, man, it gave them something, man. I couldn't, you couldn't buy. You couldn't buy the pride that they felt. Their friends were talking about their son. and I, I mean, it just gave my family... It just gave my family just so much. Well, you don't understand. You don't understand. <laughs> I that. don't. It gave, it gave Philadelphia. It gave Philadelphia so much. You legitimized all of us out there who were trying to do that, man, trying to strive to get that. You set a new bar for people who wanted to play the sport at the high level. You and guys like Andre McCarter, you guys for our era were the barometer that we wanted to achieve, man. You you set the bar. So, yeah, when we saw you guys, it it, it changed the city. And I want to just point out, there are two more things I want to talk about because we get into the end. But one thing I want to talk about is there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in Philly today that's not positive. Okay, a lot of stuff. We don't have to spend time on that now. But one of the things that I know is happening is that there is this buzz of positivity in the city because I see it all over social media about what happened at that banquet. It's just a buzz of positivity. I know there are people out there who said this could have been better, that could have been better, okay, whatever. But what I'm seeing is a lot of folk feeling that here is something positive. Here's something that we can point to that worked in our city that happened and it was good. 
And Philly needs that, man. Philly needed that. Philly needed that. And you provided it. The second thing I want to just mention, I want you to talk about this too. One of the inductees was this brother from a place in Philly up in up in Overbrook. They call it Hilltop. Ooh. And he was a former basketball player, great basketball player in his own right, played for some great Overbrook high school teams. But, you know, we talk, as I mentioned about Maurice, about a person who had a great career as a basketball player, but like many people, that's where it ends. They have a great basketball career, which is wonderful. And they don't really achieve much greatness beyond that. But Ricky Tucker, this inductee I'm talking about, they call him the franchise, has spent his life making life better for people where he grew up. And he is sort of the mayor, if you ask me, of the hilltop, man. He is, whenever anybody needs anything, he is the guy they call. They revere him up there. And it was just so wonderful to see him. And he's had his own health issues and so forth, man. But when Ricky came up there to get his reward, it just changed the place. It elevated something that was already at a high level to the stratosphere. What was your impression, man, when you saw that whole thing with Ricky go down? So, first of all, I revere Ricky Tucker. I really do. You know, he was one of our first, one of the first basketball players from our city to play in the Big East. He went to Providence. In fact, he he came right after Ernie D. Gregorio left, right? And he was... He was the starter from the very beginning, but um, I, 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 you know, Philadelphia. All the great basketball players know of all the great basketball players, and I knew of Ricky. I just hadn't met him, and in our first conversations, I was just blown away by how compassionate and sincere he was. I mean, the whole that 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 whole speech that he gave on Saturday. I've seen that three or four times, and it don't change. It does not change art. Let me tell you, let me say this to you. This man is like the Pied Piper of the Overbrook section of Philadelphia. Okay? And whenever, you know, whenever kids are in trouble or they're in danger, Rick is able to mobilize those hilltop hustlers. That's what they call themselves. The Hilltop Hustlers, and then when they mobilize, we're talking uh, 150, 200 men and women, and like they they got boots on the ground, man, and whatever it takes, that's what they do. This is an amazing organization. Under and, and Ricky Tucker will humbly say, I am not the leader. I am the voice. I am the voice. I am not the leader. I am the voice. And so when he speaks... It weighs heavy. It's it's it weighs heavy. So uh, to have to have a guy like Rick and Rick might Rick might be one of the few inductees to get inducted twice. You know, one as a player, one as a community contributor. But I just felt it was necessary that we recognize Ricky now. Okay, he's had some challenges in the past, 
But man, the impact that he, I mean, he continues to have in that section of the city is just over the top, man. It's over yeah. the top. And I want well, God's I, I, working. Yeah. And I would like to say one, one more thing before we break up here. No, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. We honor Kobe Bryant. I don't, I don't know what the hubbub is about, you know, Kobe. He's not from Philly and all this other madness. Kobe's from Philadelphia. Okay. He sure is. His mom and dad from Philadelphia. He was born in Philadelphia. I don't get why we don't accept him as our own. The Philadelphia, in fact, this entire area has not given him, has not given him his proper due. And I thought that on Saturday by doing that, by actually I, I was going to, I was thinking we'll, we'll induct it, both of them at the same time, Kobe and his dad, Joe, right? And I got that from his brother-in-law, Chubby, and his son, who were both inducted at the, at the University of San Francisco Hall of Fame on the same day. So I thought that would be a, a cute little little play there, but... Mrs. Mildred Cox, Kobe's grandmother. You know, Sharif got up there. Sharif, her, her oldest grandson, oldest grandchild, he got up there and he talked about he's Kobe's oldest cousin, older cousin, and, they, and, and Sharif used to beat the brakes off of Kobe. And they, he talked about how they used to talk about their own hopes and aspirations, right? Their own dreams and aspirations. And he talked about Kobe's work ethic, which he pointed out got from his grandmother. He got from his grandmother. And I happened to be sitting at that table. And when Sharif started talking about his grandmother, she, she like grabbed her heart, like her heart was going to jump out of her chest, man. It was so moving. It was so moving. There were a lot of really, really great memories Great moments on Saturday, I must admit. I, I perused the floor. I saw a lot of stuff going on. And it was all overwhelming. But for me, that and you, you, yeah, you, because I had a vision. I knew how I wanted this stuff to look in my own head. And I couldn't share with anybody, right? But you, you put it all together for us. You put it together for me anyway. I, I don't know how what what led why I know God led me to you to ask you to be our master of ceremonies, but God, Art, you just killed that thing. It was you just killed that thing. Everything that I had imagined in my head, you brought to fruition, and I want to thank you for that, brother. Well, you know that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I'm, I prayed that that I would be acceptable to you oh, because of all you did to make that thing happen. Man, man. Well, look, Mo, we out of time, man. Because we, we You know how we are, yeah, right. You know how we go. <laughs> We're out of time. But let me just say this. Um, this was a great event. I hope everybody turns out next year. And I want to just say to everyone listening for the first time that we do this every week. This is the Heart of Giving podcast. I'm Art Taylor. We do this every week and you can find these episodes at any major podcast platform, wherever you get your podcast, you can, you can get the heart of giving podcast. 
I hope you will listen. I hope you will subscribe because that's how we build audience. And I hope you will share this with others that you know, because we all need to be inspired regardless of what we're doing. And what you're going to get from these podcasts is a sense of why it's important to support and give back to community. And Lord knows we need to be supporting each other, especially now as the world continues to evolve in some challenging ways. So um, listen to the Heart of Giving podcast. If you're kind enough to want to support the podcast, you can go to give.org and make a contribution. I just thank you all for listening. I thank you, Maurice, for all you're doing. And we'll see all of you back here next week for a new edition. Thank you. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.